Welcome to Walking Backwards. I'm Brad Gramat. My guest this week is Garrett Brown. And Garrett, of course, needs almost no introduction. Emmy Award winner, Academy Award winner, inventor of the Steadicam, inventor of Skycam, inventor of all kinds of other camera systems and cool stuff, and um, a hero to a lot of people who do what we do as Steadicam operators. And he came here and we had a great time chatted and uh, I really enjoyed it and I hope you enjoy it too um, new sponsor for the show Tiffin and Steadicam they wanted to support the Steadicam community in this podcast so they came on board I'm very happy about it um, they're really cool and they I think they're going to be at NAB oh, well they're going to be at NAB I think Garrett's going to be at NAB with them and I actually may be at NAB as well. We'll see. Um, but one cool thing I, I, I learned from them is they're, they have a discount on arms right now, I think, until the end of April. It's like $3,500 off a G70X arm and I think almost $1,500 off a G50. So um, if you're in the arm market, it's a good time to buy. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tiffin. I'm, I'm appreciative and happy to have you along with me and i'm also happy to have my first sponsor along walter clausen fx they make all kinds of steadicam goodies as well um and have been very supportive of me as everyone knows and they are nice lovely people up in up in toronto so um so yeah check uh check their website out if you if you need anything all right, well, I'm, I'm blabbing on long enough. Um, check me out on Instagram, One Giant Robot. Check me out on Patreon, patreon.com slash walking backwards. What else? That's it. Enjoy. Are you on a, on a VU meter here? You see the levels? I do. I do. They Gosh, look fine. You lucky dog. Yeah. I love this stuff. <laughs> You're, you're a. It brings back wonderful memories of your uh, Molson and what American Express days, right? Yeah, I always, always, I wanted to be a big voiceover guy, but the only time that ever happened was in those commercials. Yeah. By the way, I'm talking to Garrett Brown. We are recording, so <laughs> um, why didn't that happen? I, I, I feel like you could have, you could have uh, done that. You're a. I. Uh, too many other things happening. I didn't chase it hard enough. Right. You know that's that's I've noticed a thing. You know if you if you sort of want something as I see a lot of kids do, a lot of sort of wanted things don't necessarily happen. Yeah. More likely things that you just fiercely go after, at least have a shot. You know. Yeah. Persistence. Perseverance. Yeah. Um, I think it was Matt Damon who famously said, when people ask me, you know, I want to be an actor, do you think I can do it? He always says no. He says the only ones that will make it are the ones who say, well, screw him, I'm going for it anyway. Yeah. Um, I get that about inventing, you can imagine. Yeah, I know they're... Just well enough known that people that have an idea for an invention call me up, and they all imagine that I will love the idea and join in and be a, their partner mm -hmm. and help them do it and invest in it and pay for it. How often does that happen? Let me, th let me count. 
um, zero. Well, no, no, no. Sorry. How often do they ask? <laughs> oh, oh, a lot. I mean, one, one or two a week. Wow. Something like that. So you've have there been any where you thought, wow, that is a brilliant idea? Obviously, you didn't invest in it or take it on, but there are some that <clears throat> usually the ones that feel like a brilliant idea they're already pretty underway. Yeah. And I, I am willing to help anybody. Uh, I make them sign an NDA because you can get in trouble if somebody imagines that you stole their thing, you know. Mm. So I, there's a very simple mutual NDA, and if they sign that, then I'll listen to what it is if I have time. Mm. And if I have advice, I'll, gi- I'll give them my best shot. You know? I yeah. love the idea of people inventing, and I think more of us need to do it. Humans will have to invent their way out of a lot of trouble. Yeah. I, I've read that you said not that you encourage amateur inventing and and that you don't you shouldn't do it for the money. Pardon the construction across the street, by the way. That's no, what if you can hear that. As long as they're doing it for the money. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think inventing for money is a is a, a very hazardous idea because if you want something, if you want one and you score, well, at least you've got one customer, you know. Right. If you want to invent for money, I have not seen that work out very well. Yeah. It's hard to say why exactly. It's just that you really need to want it to be able to judge it properly. Yeah, I guess you just have to stick with it. And it's something, if it's something you need you'll be the best judge of whether it works for you or not too if it's if it's for the money you can't really judge who it's going to work for i guess right yeah and if you want one it's likely other people will want one right right the uh, hardest ones are my brother-in-law came to me and he's a great guy but he came to me so convinced that his invention which was a way to redirect it you clip it on your mirror and it redirects the wind of your driving at the mirror to keep it free of water. <clears throat> and he had, of course, contacted one of those viperish, vampirish companies that say, let us make a success out of your invention. You know? Right. And, of course, they always say, yes, this could be really great. Uh, we will make drawings and help you file for the patent for, in his case, 8000 bucks." Mm-hmm. And I said, no, don't do that. Do not. Do not do that. I said, do you really want one of these? No, 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 but I'm sure a lot of people would. And I said, listen, there are difficulties here. First of all, every mirror is different. Therefore, you'd have to engineer for six billion different kinds of of mirror. Mm. And have you actually tried it? Have you built one? Well, no, 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 but I'm sure it would work. What if it makes a, a noise or howls like a banshee or... You know, <laughs> you know, how can you make a universal one that in 70 miles an hour is not noisy? Plus, does anybody really care? I, I've not, in my whole driving career, not been annoyed by water on my my window, you know, my, my mirror. Right. Long story short, he spent the eight grand, and he got nothing. Yeah. Yeah, that's too bad. What I mean, do they they take a percentage or something when you do that? Yeah, Is that sure. Right? And they charge you for each each maneuver and a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's funny we've launched this conversation on the hazards of inventing. 
which I know well. You do. Uh, And and you were saying you have to want something, and I think one of the things that you want is what you call the walking machine. Well, yeah, no, that's that's jumping to... uh, I'm jumping way ahead, ...abject failure on my part, really. But I still want it. I'm a little discouraged by the fact that everybody wants their transportation devices to be battery-powered. The scooters, the segways, the split segway, the powered skateboard, the on and on and on, right? Mm -hmm. What is our incentive? Our incentive is to get around in an urban place with something that you have with you all the time. That does not does not distinctly not include a bicycle because a bicycle is too damn big you know you can't have it in a cab with you or beside you in a restaurant or lug it easily up the steps to your apartment or have it in your hotel and yet walking is still a pathetically slow thing walking is three miles an hour is fairly energetic four is really stepping three miles an hour is in a city is is a long a long way, right? Yeah. When you're on those aircraft, airport walkways, I always find them exhilarating and fun, right? I mean, yeah. when you step on one of those, you feel like, hey, I'm moving now. Yeah. They only add a mile and a half an hour to your speed, and they feel that great. Which blows my mind. It, it always is. feels like you're yeah. tripling your speed. It's because we're so used to three miles an hour. When you stride on one of those, you get your weight, your speed, plus that, right? Four and a half, five, if you step out. But what would be a great urban speed? I, I'd love to see us be able to go eight miles an hour with human power. So, <laughs> as I tend to do... In fact, actually, as I've always done, I made a list of what I want. It's a great idea if you want to invent something. Make a list of every, every blessed thing you want. And do not settle for any of them not being there. Unfortunately, my list for the walking machine is so rigorous that it's defeated me. And I've, I've built five different ones. I've, I've spent a lot of dough on it. I still want it. But I sympathize with my fellow lazy-ass brethren who think batteries and you know motors are are what they want, which of course add weight. Yeah. But you want the specification, which is so difficult. You want to hear it? Yeah. This is so far afield, but actually circles back to Steadicam. I had the same kind of list for Steadicam. Here's what I want. I want something that fits in a briefcase that weighs eight pounds or less that you don't have to sit down and take your shoes off and tie something on and carry your shoes. In other words, that you throw it down, you jump on it, you're there. Mm-hmm. That can go six to eight miles an hour safely for a pregnant woman with a bag of groceries and one and a kid on one hip, you know. And then when you get there, you, you jump off, throw it in its own bag, and kaboom, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I, I also, I think I read that you wanted it to be able to get up a curb. Is that still on the list? Or mm, is that, mm-hmm. yeah. Which for me, when I started thinking about this, because your mind, when you, when you make your list, your mind starts thinking of things. And I think the curb thing. That's tough. Yeah. But on the other hand, if there's one of these on each foot, you can easily get up on a curb. But sure. if there's one on each foot, then. 
in my experience, in my last iteration of this was a very clever, low-profile, super light one on each foot. But it, I wrote it at age 71, and it scared the crap out of me. Right. So I wasn't that strong on this, you know, one per leg thing. I, I think you need to have your hands on some part of it. But if, I, I, you know, yeah, it needs to go up a curb. Or you need to be able to jump off of it, climb a curb, and then jump right back on. Right. But, I mean, but this is about the noble art of inventing, which us humans need desperately. You know. Yeah. What? What? So, what differentiates your thing from like stepping into roller skates, for example, that that you maybe just click into or whatever? It takes a lot of skill. Okay. And the two-legged thing as well, right? And you can fall on roller skates. It would be nice if it was, you know, safe. Right, you wouldn't want to have your baby on skates, that's You need true. brakes, good ones, not, you know, crazy lean back and wear out your, you know, rear pads. You need you need good brakes. Right. right. Um, and roller skates, if they go on your shoes, I have yet to see a good one that you can just throw down, step on, and it's clamped to your foot. That's true, yeah. And your foot's higher up with roller skates. Need I go on? No. I mean, what's wrong with a bicycle? In effect, it's too damn big. You need both hands. Well, you need at least one hand is tied up. You can't really conveniently hold an umbrella unless you're just just putzing along with it. Right. And it's too big. Too heavy. Too big. Yeah. Well, I don't think we're going to solve this one right now. (laughs) Maybe later. No, I'm 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 almost in despair of ever getting up with my list, and I'm getting to the point where I better hurry up and do it. Or I won't be able to use it myself. But yeah, you know, it's one of those things. It's good to have something that you want. It's great to have a long-term project. And all of us study cam operators, who I worry about at times, because this job is so much fun, and it, you know, is still reasonably lucrative. And it's a combination of arty and and athletic. I mean, it's just ideal. And you don't have to be on from the beginning of the movie. And you, and you, well, you, know, you nowadays don't have to hang around afterward for month after month. You, it's 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 pretty fabulous. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little it, the, the 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 you don't have to be there for the whole movie thing has changed quite a bit. No, I meant before all the prep, when, you when, know, yeah. uh, afterward all the post. That, that's what I'm talking about. You got it, yes, yes. And you still get to be creative, right. Um, and, you know, with just I wanted to get back, uh, just another, I wanted to say the one thing, one of the inventions I saw that it looks fabulous is the iPad arm that you did, mm. uh, which I just thought was great. I don't know whatever, if you're, if you're going to sell them or, or if it was just for you, but... It started out to be for me, and I did that with Jerry Hallway, by the way, who's my partner in that one. Have you done a podcast before, by the way? Have you been on uh, one? Um, long before they were called podcasts, I did extended you know, audio interviews, but and some of them were regularly broadcast, but they didn't call themselves that. Sure, well, they were regular Actually, interviews. I think I have done a couple, but... Oh, Okay. This one is this one is fun. I've heard a few of these. I like them. Oh, good! You're, you've listened. Yeah, yeah. I'm, that makes me so happy. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so, I think they're too long, but um, do you? Yeah. Well, 
you know, when your clothes go out of style while you're actually listening to them. You... <laughs> I like to talk. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> and I like to hear what other people have to no, say. I, I don't object. I've actually done two-hour interviews before, and they were fun. They got into places that doesn't ordinarily happen. The, the normal run. Okay, hang on. Can we shut down for a sec? Sure. As you were. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the, long, the long interview. Well, you can get into details that you, that you just don't get in a half hour, you know, and, and more subjects. So that's why I just kind of, we try to talk about everything we can and however long it goes, it goes, you know. I, I no, hope not to good. bore anyone. No, I mean, that's good. They often, for reasons related to the commercial nature of things like this, they're five minutes or seven minutes. Sure. Or, yes, we have four minutes for you. Right. And, and unfortunately, in four minutes, what happens is you get the boilerplate stories, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, I, I don't want to do boilerplate stuff, but I do want to ask you a little about The Shining because you told me a story many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you told me a few different stories about it. And the first I remember was the phone call when you first spoke to Stanley Kubrick. And then the other was when you were when you were traveling so much. Do, would you mind talking about uh, those things? No, the first one was... Uh, out of the blue, blue essentially, and at six a.m., and a Bronx-sounding voice said, "Garrett," I said, "Yes, it's Stanley." Now that offers a number of possibilities. You know, is it Stanley and and Ollie? You know, is it is it? Stanley, the guy that made the tools. I mean, who, you know, yeah. what, what Stanley is it? Livingston? No, probably not. <clears throat> but when I understood that it was Stanley Kubrick, the hour, the 6 a.m. hour, made it very odd. And of course, my first interest was why are you calling me at this point? Yeah. We had, as is well known, Kubrick saw the demo, the original demo for the study camp, and sent a spectacular telex, which still pleases me to, to read it, to Ed DiGiulio, who sent this 30 impossible shots reel around. And that, that oddly enough, was a viral sort of thing. You know, at, in 35 millimeter, somehow it went viral. It, it went all around the world. Prints of it were seen by everybody. And his telex said, among other complimentary things, is there a minimum height at which it can be used? We didn't know why that question was asked. The minimum height at that point was a bit below the waist. Shortly after that, we invented low mode, flipping it upside down. Um, And it became clear, subsequent conversations with Stanley that he would use a lot of low mode, that he wanted me to use the BL. We had only experimentally put the BL on it. <clears throat> the Ari BL for y'all digital types is was quite heavy when the first blimped cameras came along. The BL was one of two, the Panaflex and the and the BL blimped whatever that stood for. Would this have been the BL-1? No, actually, he owned a BL-2. 
the uh, one the one was a bit noisy. Yeah, <clears throat> the BL two had the removable lens blimps, and my focus immediately became, you know, how is how can I possibly do this? I had somebody, actually, the great Dick Dufresne at NFL Films, who did some of my early machining. Hmm. Dufresne made a uh, machined a custom made top to replace the viewfinder and and allow the fiber and not not the the video tap which stuck up from the camera to look directly not even through a uh, any kind of excess prisms or anything directly at the mirror <clears throat> so that required a big hole in the top of the BL and a lot of maneuvers and even so, the BL2 with the lightest blimp and my beloved 24 or 35 Distagon lenses, which were really light, mm. was still put the rig up at 65 pounds. So I was reluctant to go running around with that, but I was convinced that it could work. Um, and the BL low mode hung from directly from this bracket that we made so there was no excess you know mounting plates and all that crap that would have made it expensive heavy <clears throat> and of course his intention was to shoot a lot of the stuff of Danny with the BL mm -hmm. I did manage him to persuade I persuaded him to use my airy if it was flat out running and I used my airy in the maze but his his BL2 was the, a mainstay. And curiously enough, the Stanley Kubrick exhibit, which started at LACMA here, which many of us saw. I did, yeah. Uh, has been around the world. It was in Krakow, I think in Japan and here and there. Is opening in April at the London Design Museum. And they, weirdly, they just called the other day. Can they get a study cam with Stanley's BL on it? You know, a Model Two. So, <clears throat> broadcasting. Here I am. Anybody that has a, a reasonably intact Model Two, would you kindly get a hold of me? Because I'd love to put that rig in their exhibit for the duration, which is April through September, and maybe we'll get their Ari on it or something like that. That would be great. That's that's so cool. Uh, doesn't don't they have Stanley's old BL two, or had he gotten rid of it? Or? That it turns out was borrowed from Ari in Munich. The two C is his, ah. but the BL in that exhibit was borrowed, and so they may borrow it again. So, I think I can score the camera, but the Steadicam Model Two, which you may recall, was like the Model One with a mod with a monitor raised up on a stalk and rotatable and. You know, yeah, and its other salient characteristic was it was as far out of dynamic balance as a rig could possibly be. <laughs> <laughs> it's come a long way, hasn't it? And yet, you still did those amazing shots with it. Um, I think I was thinking today, what are what are the most iconic Steadicam shots? And and the maze work in that film are certainly the right up at the top of the list. Um, of course, the Rocky shot as well but um yeah the maze stuff was good partly because corners did not need to be taken by something that was running in the middle of a space but could be like racing turns corners could cut the corner and skid by the you know those 
incendiarily dried out branches covered with styrofoam that worried us for the whole time we were in there. (laughs) (laughs) How long were you in there doing that maze work? Three months on that, in that set. Oh, boy. Wow. And during that... oil smoke, by the way, which is not legal now. Thankfully. Oh, Um, did you feel ill effects from that? I don't know. I have a bit of COPD now, and that may be from that, or it may be maybe from smoking on and off, and so on. We were such idiots, but the smoke certainly can't have been good for anybody. No, it certainly didn't help you. Um, The other, you said three months, and I I imagine that was part of the time when you were traveling back and forth. You were commuting to England. <laughs> yeah, it, well, actually, that began about in the middle of that and then went on right to the end of the show. At about six months, I started going back and forth, week on and week off, week in New York or Philly and week in London. And that came about because you you were there, they were, if I remember correctly, very much behind schedule, and so you left. Well, no, the original deal was... They were certain it would take six months. Oh, okay. Period. And they they offered me a really crappy deal based on English ACTT operator scale, which they said was necessary. But mm. <coughs> fortunately, I had the wit to say, <clears throat> "All right, look, if it goes over six months, you're going on my deal," <clears throat> which you know was already established in the U.S. So I named my rate and. <clears throat> One of the provisions was that <clears throat> I could fly back and forth week on, week off, excuse me, <clears throat> at Stanley's expense on the Concord, which at that point was not that expensive, astoundingly. And they said, oh, don't worry, Gareth, we aren't going over six months. This is Jan Harlan, uh, Stanley's brother-in-law and producer. Mm. But on the anniversary of the six months, I marched into Jan's office with the contract which they had signed, and we went on that deal, which was amazing. And actually, for them, it was fine. They shot all the non-study cam stuff the weeks when I were off, was off, and then they did my stuff the weeks that I was there. For me, the saddest part of that whole deal was that there was a nine-foot Steinway in the so-called Colorado Lounge that I had my eye on. And I, I'm, I'm a hacker, but I love I love to play at a at a piano. And I played that Steinway in between between breaks. And at one point, I asked Stanley if he would consider selling it at the end of the film because it literally had fallen off a truck. It sounds like a joke, but it did. It fell off a truck in Manchester and broke its legs off. And Stanley's chippies put quite realistic-looking legs back onto it. Right? Really? And he agreed to a price of five thousand U.S. dollars for a nine-foot Steinway Grand, which I don't know if you're aware, but they're in the hundred some thousand oh, range. It, it and, sounded cheap to me, but yeah, uh, <laughs> and even then, were hugely expensive. Wow. However, on one of my rotations home, Ellen <clears throat> showed me a uh, clipping and said, look at this. S- stage three on the L Street Studios had burned down. Stage three burned to the ground, which was the Colorado Lounge set. 
And so when I got home there, there was jagged beams that looked like, you know, the inside of the Hindenburg after it burned overhead and drifting snow and the melted, you know, main bronze object of the piano was all that was left of it. So that that deal never happened. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, um, so you flew, so that was another, what, six months? Back yeah, nearly. I, I had, I don't know, quite a few round trips. I would, yeah, it sounds like it. I, I, had imagine. The, I had the second highest number of round trips at one point, next to a West German guy that just flew it every week who had vastly more than I have. Wow. Wow. He, he had 70 round trips at the time. And you had maybe 30, had 40? 20, no, 20, 20 yeah. something, 20 something. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot of times. But they do allow you to eat your weight in caviar on that on that plane. There's no limit to how much caviar you can eat. Wow, maybe that's why they went out of business. Unfortunately, no, no. Well, unfortunately, I've never been in a situation like that since. <laughs> I know, and probably no one ever will. That was such a rare instance. I uh, bumped into the West German later when we were flying over to do Yentl, and he was still doing it every week, and at that point had 280 round trips. Wow. But it's a, it was a great plane. It was three hours, 10 minutes, you know, Heathrow to to JFK. And wow, it would have been so faster fantastic. if they didn't have to slow down over land. You know? Really, they had to slow over land. Why is that? The sonic booms. Oh, right, of course. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. I, I never got to fly it. I, I My dad did once. He, he said it was incredibly loud. I don't remember that. I You know, there were things you remember about it are that the sky looks black, the windows were ridiculously small, mm. and the men's room required you to bend over like a pretzel backwards. <laughs> but the seats were fantastically comfortable, four across. Mm. Oh, and the plane... If you look at it in turbulence, this long cigar shape used to undulate, which is something that needed getting used to. <laughs> wow, so the whole thing flexed. Yes, it was designed to flex. Wow. That was a, a tour de force. Yeah. It's too bad. It was such a cool-looking plane, too, in the nose cone that, that tilted, and that's pretty neat. A lot of the most impressive stuff we've done was done way early in the computerized era, including landing on the moon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with and believe me, with the greatest humility, I would add doing the Skycam to that, because we did it in 1984 when the main computer <laughs> was an Osborne. I don't even know what that is. Yes. And, <laughs> and dreadful. And, and we talked to the motors, as they say, at 1,200 baud. Wow. Which you couldn't even send a text at these days. So. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, that's... At the time, we all thought, wow, this is fine. <clears throat> yeah, it's like a miracle. Jeez. Um, well, we were talking about Kubrick, and you you continued your relationship with him. Did you ever work with him again? or? No, I I was asked to and was unable to. I was asked to do... Full Metal Jacket. I would have loved to, but I was committed for something. And I put a couple other operators on it, including Jean-Marc Bringuier. Um, 
and then I was asked to do Eyes Wide Shut, and I couldn't do that. Usually, by the time he went to hire us, things were very well set, but it was close to the fact. Mm. And so I, I suggested Liz Ziegler for that, who did a spectacular job, spectacular. She did wonderful work on that. However, she was on it for, I think, a year and a half. Wow. I'm surprised her mental health su- su- survived that. Although she did come home with several pet rabbits. I don't know what that indicates. but <laughs> She needed company, I guess. Yes. <laughs> uh, was he, do you know, was he still doing take after take after take on Eyes Wide Shut like yes, he was in The Shining? He, he yeah. was. He was. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember you saying something like, you know, after you, you would say it better, but something about how everything changes throughout, you know, when you start at one and then five and then 10 and then 20, um, how altered, maybe I, am I remembering correctly? No, I, from your own experience, I'm sure you can get away if you're, if you're slick, you can get away with what you do and take one in many cases or even a rehearsal. Right. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Although your late night show, popcorn chomping, twenty years older self might not really admire it, you can get away with it, right? Yeah. But I would find from takes one to five, I was furiously learning things, you know. And then by take five, it would have been dandy by most people's, you know, criteria. By 14, it would be approaching what passes in our little world for perfection. You know, you're there, you're on rails, you, you, know, you know what you're doing. But the fascination of it was that even on into the 20s and 30s, you keep learning new stuff. You learn that, say, if this foot is an inch closer to this wall, in fact, moves over until you kiss this wall, that you can get this effect, you can get further into the room, and you learn to settle the framing down so that the actors have room for the frame, but it moves when it needs to. And and you learn things about putting the putting what you know about music, let's say, to work about the timing of accelerations and things. I'm a very self-critical, but and very amateurish classical guitar player and I realize that as I'm learning something I can't even really hear it for days and even weeks sometimes I can play it the way a student in a recital will play something but I can't really hear it and eventually when I can really hear it then then's when stuff happens magic stuff happens and it I tell people in study cam workshops, the very best thing you can do as soon as you can, once the peripherals are understood and you know the deal, is put yourself in the mode of somebody sitting in the theater watching your shot 40 feet wide. Pretend that that little monitor is a big screen and you're the audience, Mm -hmm. because that tells you just so much about how the shot should be. You know, when you've whipped over to this and you're looking at it, have you? When have you seen enough? You can't tell that by the numbers, but as an audience member, you can go, okay. Meaning, I get that, and you can, with perfect confidence, 
then move on to something else in the shot. How do you want to see it as an audience? And even if you don't know the answer to that, what can you do as an operator that would get your audience self, that would get them? Right, to know, at least be in that mode of... That would affect them, you know. That would, right. And what, what, really, what effect do you really want, you know, without, as my guitar teacher notoriously said, when I was just you know, affecting the crap out of every note. He said, don't piss on every fire plug. You know, don't, don't save it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Play every it. note can't be special, I yeah, guess. Yeah, play it. And then the, the, the things that are of importance and are interesting are, should be thought of as a great arc from the beginning of the shot. I used to, I love to talk about and think about shots as a series of arcs that have to do with how long they're in motion and, and at what point they've actually stopped or reversed direction or something, you know. Mm. Because the, the way you design those arcs so that they start somewhere and they go somewhere, that, that's something, you know, that's something really worth thinking about. Uh, people in... In studying what people do in workshops is <clears throat> both frightening and and really rewarding as hell because you see them mysteriously stop because they you know they've lost the continuity of what they were doing or and I don't mean stop the shot I mean stop kind of waiting till their brain tells them oh yeah now I go here uh, <clears throat> Not really subordinating the material to the story in some cases, you know, just all that. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to sound like some sort of pundit about this, but, you know, I'm, I am an amateur student of, still of the moving camera and the effect it has people on people and the, the great arsenal of effects that we command when we move it, you know, the the nature of our accelerations and decelerations is very special to people watching because they're much more important than just the nature of it as it flows along, how it stops, how it starts. These are the big moments, you know. Sure. How it accelerates, how it decelerates, how, how you let actors use the frame, how, as we tell people in classes, how you move with the actors and stop with the actors how you particularly avoid just sticking everything in the center of the goddamn frame, you know, when you're following people or being followed. When you run out of extra circuits to protect yourself, that's the default circuit. Stick the frame right. in the middle and just hope you don't die or fall off or, you know, whatever. <clears throat> yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Uh, you've, you've got my brain going, I, and I need to think about this podcast here and not 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 steady camp well, no, I mean you know I and, and also I don't want to start sounding like Yoda in this thing you know well mm, mm, difficult it is mm. well the the Low ama mode mm. <laughs> <coughs> the the amazing <coughs> the amazing uh uh thing about that is that you not only did you in Vent the Steadicam, you're the first one to learn how to use it. Then you're the first one to use it properly and do 
really great shots with it. So you call yourself an amateur. I, I don't, I'm not sure why you said that. I mean, you're student of moving camera. I mean, that's okay. A, yeah, huge, as a student, that but I, there, that's a huge subject. Sure, study uh, cam being one aspect of it. I love, I love drones. I love what people are doing with them. I, I also kind of smile because we're so early in the game that drone shots are, are on rails and many of them are very uninteresting because they do the obvious stuff. Mm -hmm. And when you see one that does the non-obvious stuff, you know, starts and stops are hugely impressive in, with drones, but they usually cut into drone shots that are in motion, you know. Right. Drone shots that are low and down in our territory that are barely moving and that reveal themselves as drone shots when they do something that, you know, sure. no other thing can do. I mean, imagine being in, uh, alive in an era when this can happen, you know, when this little thing can do all this stuff and be dead stable. More on that subject later. Stability is kind of a trap in some ways, too. Just being stupidly stable is not necessarily the greatest thing on earth. Well, it can it can become machine-like, right? Yeah, and also I I go on and on in lectures about the way we perceive the world as humans because a lot of a lot of our reaction to movies is referenced so subtly or not to the way we biological creatures see the see the world. Mm -hmm. We should probably return to that subject later because I don't want to keep you know okay pontificating too much here. That's fine. Uh, I was asking you about the shots in 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 The Shining. There, everybody knows the shot you did in Rocky up the stairs, but I don't know if you've talked about before the the behind the scenes stuff. I remember you telling me I, if if my memory serves me about the batteries. <laughs> I'd, have you have you spoken about that a lot, or is that a no? Not a great deal. Uh, I found it interesting. It's hard to remember how starved Rocky was as a little B picture in the beginning. Uh, Stallone wanted to star in it, and he controlled the script. Chartoff and Winkler and the studio attempted to talk him out of that. They wanted Burt Reynolds from memory. This, I think that's correct. And various other actors well-known to do it. <clears throat> Stallone got his back up and said, no, I'm starring in it. So to punish him, they reduced the budget to starvation level. Uh, one of the, you know, a, a minuscule budget for the time. So it was this tiny, barely B picture in Philly with one motor home. Wow. And that motor home had Stallone sitting in the middle of it in his gray sweats. It had the catering that was brought in in front all over the dinette and the driver's seat and all that. And it had the one and only bathroom that we had at oh the my. back and its poor, inadequate holding tank and so on, which frequently overflowed. Oh. And Stallone had to sit there in the middle of this, you know, noxious phenomenon, right? But we all got used to asking, you know, what, what was the status of this thing? Had it been emptied and so on? And the first time I met him, I walked into this motorhome and this guy 
was sitting there in his gray sweats. I knew who who he was, and I pointed to the to the bathroom and I said, "Is it working?" And he said, "He's a colorful speaker." He said, "Well, you don't throw any iron in there, or you'll be all right." Which I thought was a very wonderful expression. There was so much of that in his script. That's yeah. partly why that script was absolutely, absolutely irresistible, and partly why the studio was so rabid to have it. Yeah. And then our stuff eventually filtered back to L.A., and they loved it so much that they shut down and re-upped there. But we shot the art museum steps all on the same morning, his very tired half stumbling up the steps and then his triumphant running up the steps one one after the other mm. somebody had dropped my prototype and the the uh, motor shaft ran up the center post from below and since the post was slightly bent the motor shaft rubbed and it was fiercely cold mm. and the crappy little CP batteries that were on board would not turn it over. And I sent somebody out for a 12-volt and a 6-volt car battery, and we hot-wired that to the rig with a ridiculously heavy cable, of course. <laughs> and poor Ralph Boda, the DP, the Nabit DP of that segment, had to follow me up the steps carrying two car batteries, which was way more burdensome than than my job, you know, the prototype weighed 23 pounds, <laughs> except for the really crappy video viewfinder, you know, I wasn't working that hard, Yeah. but he couldn't keep up with me and the cable got taut and there's some yawing in the shot at the top of the steps that's mildly annoyed me for all these years. But I tell people in workshops, look, <clears throat> I've never made a perfect study cam shot, you know. It's still a great shot, you know. Yeah. It's okay. It's a great shot. And I've seen that shot countless times and I, I don't know that I've ever noticed uh, any horizon issue because the shot is so good. Well, really, I've seen it countless times and have never not noticed the horizon <laughs> issue. Well, it's different when it's your own work, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's uh it's it's Maybe the most iconic Steadicam shot. I, I don't know. Uh, again, I, it's up in the, the top there. Do you like stories? Do I like stories? Yeah. I love stories. At the end of making that shot, I had a little weird old Ford van that had my stuff in it, and there was a grip truck, you know, raggedy-ass grip truck, and there were a couple other trucks. <clears throat> and the other truck was a flatbed trailer with six porta-potties chained onto it because... Philly's idea of a honey wagon, that's all they could come up with. So it was a flatbed trailer, which is pretty high up in the, you know, a ladder that they would put down to get to it, and six porta potties chained to it. And then there was a, a Philly police ex escort cons consisting of their elite motorcycle troops, you know, with Harleys with lights and flashing this and that, and the guys had special uniforms with, you know, you know, odd little hats and so on. Sure. 
And um, their instructions were to give the production a sirens blazing, lights flashing escort back to the the lot where we parked everything in South Philly, right? But the trucks kept stealing away until finally there was me and the flatbed truck of porta potties. And when my assistant and I finished off, the porta potty guy was waiting for us in case we had to use one of them. The cops now formed in ahead of and behind one small old van and a flatbed full of six porta potties. And the sirens blazed, and we drove through the streets. It was thrilling at really high speed. <laughs> I could only, I could just only imagine what were the citizens thinking had happened. Had somebody in this truck had an almost terminal episode of something terrible to be followed by six porta potties? Oh, I would love to see a photo of that. Philly is a marvelous film production town. The the uh, Philly Film Office is run by our dear friend Pinkinson, Sharon Pinkinson, a.k.a. Pinky, and hundreds of films have shot there. Yeah. And it's it's very sophisticated, and there's great crew available and so on. But this was at the very beginning. This, <laughs> this was it. <laughs> I've never before <laughs> since seen a... Flatbed full of porta potties. Oh, wow! But they gave you the hero's escort. Oh, um, if I ever get a parade, I want to insist on that on being back in the parade. <laughs> the flatbed with the porta potties. That's it. All right, we'll do. Um, <laughs> that's that's great. So wait, she's been the the film commissioner for for all these years. Many or? many years. Many many wow. years. Yeah. Fantastic. She was not quite the film commissioner then, but she has been, I think, now for 30 years. She's fantastic. Wow, 30 years. Good for her. And a great film commission is the only reason, not to mention some some intelligent tax uh, legislation, is the reason these cities prevail. The reason people are going to Baton Rouge and so on is is tax law. Yeah. Same reason they go to Atlanta and yeah. Ohio and all the places. And here now. And here we have a fairly large one as well. Um, Isn't it amazing, though, how it's waxed and wanes? Everybody fled for Canada for a while, you know? Yeah. And Canada is still very busy. I think they they do the same type of thing. But um, But one thing that's good for all of us is, <clears throat> despite the great number of study cameras, study cam operators that there are <clears throat> this society will never look away from from film production from story production from you know everything from documentaries to series and the the existence of the cable outlets Netflix etc cetera, etc cetera, and Amazon and Apple pretty much guarantees that this this skill, which I think is a seminal filmmaking skill, operating for sure, and in my humble view, study cam operating, are we're here to stay, you know? Oh yeah. And and the better we get at it, the better it will be for us and for the and for the business. There's lots yeah. to be said and I'm sure you'll stray into this area about gimbals and the various amounts of gear that 
are available and and the nature of this skill that we have and what its place is in all this uh, and we can circle back to that I'm happy for that what 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 kind of organization do you think of when you think of these blogs? How do we want to how do we want to get where you want to go? It's not really chronological. It's is it just random? Yeah, yeah. It no. can just be whatever whatever we want to talk about, you know. And and it it'll go where it goes, and that's that's fine with me. Um, oh, we've already heard great stories, and I'm uh, hoping to hear more. <laughs> but um, I, I was gonna I was gonna comment you. It, I can't help but think, and this has been said before, but because of the way you, when you created Steadicam and became the first operator uh, uh, and started to show it around and do it, you didn't do what a lot of people would do, which is say, this is, these are my secrets. You shared all your secrets. You taught anyone you could. And I guess instinctually you knew that the only way it would grow and improve was if more and more people were involved with it and you shared well i had i had help coming to that conclusion because <clears throat> i wish i could say brad that this was you know that i was a sort of leap out of the bath eureka kind of inventor mm. this would have saved me a lot of heartache but <laughs> i was a little filmmaker in philly 3,000 miles from Hollywood with an enormous dolly, as I've said, ad infinitum. Sure, yeah. And I loved smooth shots. And um, not knowing much better, I started chasing some way to disconnect the human from the, the camera. And the early versions, as you may have seen, some of them were grotesque. I used to joke. In fact, I joked <laughs> to Robert Gottschalk of Panavision when I was showing him the first 16 millimeter tape, and he, he's not a warm individual. I, I, he made me a bit nervous even then. And he said, well, flat out, he said, how does it work? And I, of course, wasn't in a position to tell him that. And the great thing, of course, is I didn't need to. The shots were that, the shots, but they didn't give a clue how it worked. Right. And I said, well, <clears throat> The only thing I can tell you is that it's 70 feet long and you can't smoke near it. <laughs> and this guy, instead of getting that it was a joke, looked straight at me with an expression that said, well, of course, we don't want that, you know, that's ridiculous, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a well-often-taught, uh, often-described story related to Panavision attempting to do it by themselves. You know, and honestly, I'm not sure I can blame them. I'm this long-haired kid from Philly, slightly wild-eyed, that had a 16-millimeter demo. Mm. And the temptation, at least on their part, because they thought they were at the apex of the camera universe for all time, disregarding Mitchell, whose movement they were using, and many other types. <laughs> right. They thought that I was just some kind of savant, mm. some somebody like that kid in Deliverance, banjo-playing kid in Deliverance, you know, <laughs> who just somehow had this skill. Right. And they had no interest in really getting me to tell them how to do it or being beholden to me in any way. 
because I, in their minds they were they were the smartest ones yes, out and, there. So and Gottschalk was certain they could figure it out. Right. He had been in Japan. He had seen bicycles that trundle along with baskets of hot fish on them suspended by bungee cords. Mm. And in his hubris and whatever it was, he believed that's how it was done. And so I heard later um, that they spent four million bucks trying to do this and constantly sending spies on around to you know, spy on our version. We actually caught them hiding in the scenery when I was demonstrating on Exorcist Two: The Heretic, mm. and ejected Gottschalk and his so-called son. They snuck in to they snuck take in photos. And took photos, yeah. right? <clears throat> so that's that's a that's how they figured it out. So everything with. they did began to, no matter what they tried. And one of their guys eventually opened the closet and showed me some just grotesque things that they tried. I have photos. Um, none of them were seventy feet long and <laughs> full of hydrogen. Though I have to say that they didn't they didn't buy that. But <laughs> when the when the glide cam debuted, it was on Days of Heaven. You mean Panaglide? The Panaglide, right, sorry. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. Thanks. And the Haskell happened to be the replacement DP for um, oh god, what was his name? The famous guy who started it. Yeah, and I can't remember yes, either. Ella, Ella, Ella. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's all right. We'll apologize. It'll come to one of us later. <laughs> And so he was outraged because he had used it first on Bound for Glory and on commercials. And so he took photographs of it, which became the center linchpin of a, of our patent suit. Mm. Um, they had an operator named Eric Von Herren Noman, and when he would wandered off, then Haskell shot all the photos of him. And it was to the life. The, the same thing we did. Yeah. <clears throat> it was so similar that when Gottschalk put it up for an Oscar, the Oscar Technical Committee made a rare technical joke. They said that <laughs> they said to him, perhaps you should consider putting up for a religious award of some sort. It has a miraculous resemblance to the study. <laughs> And they gave us the Oscar <laughs> that same year. Yeah, no, no. I, the first year they got it. They got it postponed, which okay. is one reason they were up for malfeasance and blah blah blah. Got it. Got it. God, it's very weird to revisit. Oh, they that so Panavision time. got that. They got it. Your award postponed. They got it stopped for a year. I had no idea. Persuaded the committee that oh, this needs more study, and they put their own up the next year. Mm. Well, they, so that, they spent that year developing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to sound like one of these guys that lugs a whole load of grievances along with me because, honestly, I have... <clears throat> well, I've never heard you speak about it no, before, I have, so it's not I like have, it's... I have no grievances. Almost everything that ever happened happened for logical reasons. Sure. And was so much, you know, the, the net result has been so much fun for me. God, I can't tell you. I mean, I'm such a lucky guy. I cannot tell you how lucky I feel about all this. How, how many, how often do you get to have an effect on an industry and have it still 
be happening 44 years later. And in fact, happening better than ever, as, it, as we may talk about later. We have a new Steadicam invention that's it's the nuts, you know, it's the bomb. <laughs> So. <laughs> As the kids are saying, we will we will talk about that in a moment. But I, I, I was I was going to expand on what you said. You know, you didn't just affect the movie making business. Well, obviously in TV commercials, all that. <clears throat> but almost everyone in the world, they may not be aware of Steadicam, as it were, but they're aware of things that Steadicam has done. You know, and that is. Uh, that's unbelievable, you know. It's a it's a crazy effect. Um, I was just thinking about that yesterday. I thought, geez, unless you're an isolated tribe in the in the in the forest somewhere, you've seen a Steadicam shot, you know, and that's something. And in only forty years, you know, well, uh, forty. I'm a mixed feelings about that. Forty is an awful long time, and yet some things during that time seem like yesterday. Yeah, yeah. That's the nature of getting older, part of it. Yeah. What came of that that Panavision situation? They became, they folded and became our licensee. I mean, yes, they became a licensee. Ah. And pretty much at the same time, Gottschalk expired for reasons that are not, I won't bother going into, but... The new chairman of Panavision was a man named Jack Holzman, who's become a dear friend of mine. Mm. And Jack took one look at this situation, which was Panavision paying royalties for a rig that nobody really wanted to use. There were only a few fingerfuls of operators that were interested in it at the end, <clears throat> for reasons that aren't worth going into. but. He called me and asked me to come to his office and said, let's sort this out. He concluded that the very most sensible thing to do was to make Studicam the machine, buy Studicams, and put their rather unique and wonderful lightweight Panaflex, the silent lightweight one that was made of magnesium, on the Studicam. And a marriage made in heaven. So... Mm -hmm. They bought study cams, put their camera on it, and got out of the arrangement where they had paid us royalties on its use for all those years, which you know didn't amount to much because it, it just it didn't end up doing that much. But mm -hmm. <clears throat> that was great. I, I love this guy because some new CEOs come in and sweep everything aside and rape a company and take its value to the shareholders and march off with their golden parachutes. Holtzman is, is a thinker and a, an extraordinarily creative variation of thinker. And he saw through this right away and just fixed it. It was great. He used logic. <laughs> yeah. It's rarer and rarer, it seems. Um, well, after the Panaglide, then, you had... Uh, when the when the patent was expiring, if I'm correct, in 1994, mm -hmm. uh, you had Pro, who was already making some things, right? Yeah, Pro is a story that might have worked out differently. I I love those guys and still do. Um, they made the so-called donkey box, which is an XY adjustable stage. <clears throat> I had done it. 
swinging the battery, which was not a great solution. Um, I tried to persuade Cinema Products that we should take over and sell donkey boxes, you know. If not buy them from them, give them a royalty. I couldn't make that sale for some reason with with CP, and CP was nearing the end of their tenure because they had begun to do some things that weren't terribly sensible. They made a six-plate editing machine long after the heyday of film editing. Mm. Um, and these other adventures almost took them out, and so they had no resources to, to do much. And the coup de, coup de gras was a man named Ron Lenny <clears throat> was running the company. DiGiulio, who I quite liked, was forced out. Lenny was running the company. And uh, George Paddock and his boys came to Lenny and said, look, you make a nice arm, the Master Series arm. Can we buy arms? And Lenny, I think, made a notoriously bad decision in saying no. He, against our advice, he said, no, we will not sell them arms because... If we don't, they will buy our sleds. As right, that long-running thing where you had to buy the whole system together is that it yeah, was, that was his idea, right? Uh, well, brilliant. of course, George hired an engineer, spent three hundred and some thousand bucks, and made the Pro Arm, which is an entirely respectable arm and true to form. George did not infringe any of our patents. And that's one thing I vastly respect about him and his his companions, you know, which included Chris Harhoff and... Um, was it Steve St. John? No, no, uh, well, my great oh, friend. No, sorry, names come flying. I'm I'll, trying to remember who it, it was, it was, yeah. it was that triumvirate who co-invented their things, right? <clears throat> so, of course, they made a sled, and then they had an arm. And that started... Um, the pro company, which was was good on customer service at a time when CP was headed down and was not very good. So, unfortunately, a great number of LA operators became pro operators and did and did excellent work. Um, it took us, you know, because I'm you know I'm the study cam guy. I'm I'm playing for the home team. Sure which began to feel like a Bush League team at some point, but we have clawed our way back. You know, I managed to do the G-Series arms, which I quite like, and and lots of gear since then. And uh, most recently, the thing called Volt, which yes. is, has been ex- extremely, extremely good. Yeah. And long, long awaited. Yeah. Uh, how's it selling? You've, a lot of people are, because I know a lot, quite a few people have bought it. Well, now, have you bought it? No, not All yet. Right, I'm out of here. <laughs> okay, thanks. Right, thanks for coming. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> Can I take the bottle? The Volt is an interesting, because there's the, what's it called? The Wave. Yes. Which is another version of this. And then there's the Volt, and they're trying to do the same thing essentially totally different way of doing it not well not even not even the same thing actually if you get to it okay i mean the volt's a good story there a man named steve wagner wagner from san francisco a former ampex engineer and as we learned instantly a brilliant 
character contacted me because he's been shadowing study cam and me for many years unbeknownst to me mm. he built an arm his own arm i found out later when i went to visit him in san francisco he said oh i have something in the trunk to show you he built a remarkable arm just to see if he could do it hmm. this is a wide-ranging intellect um a master of electronics and software and his mechanical engineering chops are not chopped liver. He's, he's a really good mechanical engineer. He sometimes has insights that I, I even struggle to follow you know, hmm. mechanically. And I'm, you know, I'm sort of a me- mechanical guy. Steve said, I have made a computerized, computer-powered and stabilized Merlin. Would you like to see it? I happened to be in L.A., and I said, yes, please, come come visit us. I think he came on his own hook the first time. <laughs> he walks in the door with a version he made of the Merlin, if you remember, the Merlin was the folding one that did camcorders. Sure, yeah. You know, with a gimbal and so on. It was nice. He made a a computerized version of that, that was so good that you could walk around full telephoto and it was as if you were sitting on land on a tripod. Wow. And he did it with computer voice coils and his own software. I persuaded Steve Tiffin to give him a license so that we might see where all this could go, which was a shocking number of years ago. We, For various reasons, we didn't do anything with it for a while. We made a... After a couple of years, we made a level box called the WHM, which is still one of those hotly hunted for and brilliant brilliant devices that shows you true level with no accelerations. And when you see true level, that's a marvelous piece of feedback info. There are maybe a dozen of those floating around that people are fiercely interested in finding them. And then nothing. And during that time, the Movi came out. Mm-hmm. We, know, we know and like those guys. That was, that was a good thing. And that was followed by Ronan, you know, beginning their great rise to almost ascendance in that business, particularly in terms of price. And immediately we had to analyze the the nature of gimbals versus the nature of what we do, right? The nature of gimbals are stupidly stable in all respects, um, almost in a dry kind of sear academic way. They're stable, totally stable. However, they can't be carried by an individual smoothly like a study cam, which, since it's you know, frictionless and on bearings and and is a fingertip device can move through space as smoothly as as the gimbal itself works. So if you're lugging the Movi around or the or the Ronin with your bodily strength, your hands are heavily loaded and that's not a great setup. When you look at the foreground objects shot by a movie, you can see a lot of erratic motion as your hands jerk around and so on. Mm -hmm. We make something called the Study Mate, which helps that a lot, and there are overhead bungee-controlled devices that can hang them. 
both of which somewhat limit the high and low boom ability of these things. The slightly vexing thing to me is we had Steve Wagner. <laughs> we had the we had the the instructions for gold. You know, we could have we could have done this sooner. However, it and and we also believe and still believe that Studicam is the great way to operate and that operating is one of the seminal skills of of filmmaking. Underrated by film students who don't understand that. Operating is is the it's the money. It's what's between you and the viewer. It's where you point it and how you point it and, and how it accelerates and how it decelerates and what exactly you look at and the framing and the and then when you add the motion of your legs or whatever vehicle you're on, then suddenly it simply is not an angular phenomenon operating. It's an angular phenomenon in space with very few of the classic limitations that Dolly and you know cranes inspire, which tend to produce more linear work. Mm -hmm. Except that study cam operators from the beginning, myself included, had to learn to control the roll axis almost without thinking. One of the great challenges of Steadicam is to control roll so that it stays level. And no matter how good you are, there is some small nagging circuit in your head that is causing a portion of your attention to be devoted to that. Secondly, in order to make the roll axis and the tilt axis manageable, we elected to operate slightly bottom heavy. Mm-hmm. And that's the great original compromise, almost like Adam and Eve, you know, it goes way back. This, this compromise has been the, the nightmare and the savior of us from the beginning. If you operate dead neutral, you have to watch like a hawk, because if you look away at anything else, you have no feedback yeah. that your roll has gone out of sync. Or in any case, your, t- your tilt could... Or your yeah, tilt. Yeah, sure. You, you can't walk along with a given headroom and look around as we need to do for navigating and to see when's that cross and how many steps have I got, and by the way, where's the edge of the Grand Canyon? Right. And all that, right? Yeah. So neutral operating was always the holy grail, and and although the French notoriously would have drop times anywhere up to 10 hours, <laughs> they still were bottom heavy. Yeah. Well, you use gravity to your advantage, right? Yeah. I mean, However, I mean, there you are. You're a pendulum. You're yeah. a goddamn pendulum. When you go around a corner, it kicks. So you have to learn what Jerry Hallway learned to call the preventers. He, you... you, you when you start moving, you give that little touch, infinitely calibrated with your little finger to start the thing vertical. And then when you stop, you swing it around and stop it right. from swinging. And if you go around a corner, your little finger stops it from kicking out. Yeah. When you do operate neutral, it's the greatest goddamn thing on earth. You know, now, now you have the, the full factory capabilities of a study kit. You can push it around like mad. You can do anything you want. You can, et cetera. But you have to have neutral with what the volt does. The volt simply applies a little bit of smarts 
to two motors. One is a trunnion motor and one is a yoke motor. And the, I have to say the you know, smart and unique thing about the Volt is there's a counter that knows where you are around it because all this has to work no matter where you are. You could be walking around and looking over your shoulder. You could be whipping to the other side and so on. In other words, the yoke can be anywhere around the, the rig mm-hmm. and it still has to know what's roll and what's tilt. Right. And that's the... <clears throat> Yeah, I never thought of that. That that's that's the genius, or I, no, that's it's it's Steve Wagner's genius. I'm I'm the I'm the lug that did the you know the mechanics and proposed the invention and sold it and so on. And I'm I'm on the patent, but the magical part is Steve's. And when you get that right with two brushless motors, well, then there they are. They're on the gimbal. They weigh a total of two pounds. They don't affect the top topness and bottom heaviness right. of the rig. They don't require you to move the gimbal anywhere else is special. The, the wave is a fine object, you know, and, and when it was the only thing out there, it provided, you know, a great deal of security in people's minds about the roll axis, not to mention allowing you to edge over the tops of things and so on, you know, which is a nice thing. Mm-hmm. Also, the wave is very fine for handheld. It's a great thing to have for handheld. Uh, more, let's let's return to that. Remind me to return to why that wave is useful in handheld. Okay. Sure. Um, <clears throat> but back to the volt. The volt does that elemental job for you. That means that you can be in Don Juan and whip this way and that and be confident you're upright. You can look away and make a whip pan, and it's nailed at the other end, level. You can set level as if it had a artificial bottom heaviness, and therefore you can tilt up and dial up however much it wants to come back to level. Right. But in this case, it doesn't swing beyond level. It simply servos down to level, which is fabulous. Right. You don't even have to prevented from going beyond level and do all that that we're so used to Right, it to just doing. does it itself, yeah. And then there's a mode called sticky mode, that, and that's one button push from your gimbal, you know, your yoke hand that lets it stick at any angle that you want. Mm. And we're still fussing with the nature of sticky mode. We may allow it to have some of those lovely contours so that you can ease it out of it or into it and so on. But... <clears throat> the combination of these things means that so- things that you never could do, extraordinarily bold moves, don't produce a pendulum, and they produce the confidence that a tilt angle you select stays there. And this, all of this, when you add it up, it accounts for the enthusiasm of operators trying it and new owners who are, you know, unless there's something, you know, amiss in their particular one, are ecstatic with these things. Because, of course, you can dial it off and operate the way you're used to if you feel like it and dial up any amount of this help. If it's windy, your roll and your tilt are taken care of, you know, and all for the addition of a couple of pounds to your rig and no alteration for how long it has to be or 
or whatever. Sure. Know. And and no no noise, which is uh, mm. you know, it's not gyros, so Yeah, no noise. Um and none of that, you know, fighting and then releasing and locking and so on. No kind of no weird stuff. I mean you when you get used to it you can do whip pans that even they'll notice in Valhalla. <laughs> I didn't try to do whip hands when I've when I've tried it out. Maybe I will next time. <laughs> whip, oh God, whip hands are great because it lands level and with tilt, the correct tilt. Yeah. So it's all you have to do is not overshoot your pan and your home. Yeah, you just have to stop it when the when the time is right. Right. Yeah. Mm, you do have to call the engine room ahead and say, engine room. Preparing to stop him with... Oh, never mind. <laughs> uh, you wanted me to come back to the... To the... Uh, wave. Jeez, the wave. Yeah, I no, almost, no, almost the didn't wa- come back. The, no, the wave is good. There are, a couple of, there are a couple of things that it does that you have to get used to because it does physically shift the, you know, the bottom of the camera aside and things like that. But it does cause you to add extra weight, and it's above the gimbal, which is slightly a nuisance. But the wave, yeah. why is the wave good for handheld? Not to mention study cam, but why is it good for handheld? Because our human sensibility, our human way of seeing, never sees off level. Right. If you tilt your head now, as I've you know, to boringly said at lectures, the world doesn't tilt. You know, your head is, you know, 15 degrees off to one side and the world is level, right? Yeah. Our perception of the world evolved so that it's extraordinarily stable. It it disregards and throws out info that we don't care about, such as our, our nerves don't tell us that we're sitting on a chair. They don't constantly say, I feel the chair, I feel the chair, I feel the chair. I feel, I, shut up. The, the chair is taken for granted. Don't keep telling me that. I feel the chair. Shut up. Right. Our nerves, our, our perceptions don't tell us that you're moving up and down when you walk. Hey, you're moving up and down when you walk. Look, look how much you're moving up and down when you walk. We're not interested in that. So our view of a walk is a steady cam shot with no moving up and down or lurching side to side because mm-hmm. the brain just loves that, you know. And therefore, a handheld shot that goes off level is conspicuous to us. Not to mention, you know, why should the actors see each other smoothly and the audience see them shaking? So mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of handheld, never have been. That's probably why the study cam exists, you know. Just yeah, I've heard, like you, I've heard you say that before. You just never liked handheld. Yeah. Um, although there are some interesting. Um, well, there's one interesting device that Neil Neil Bryant was on. He he has that Charles Pappert came up with, and Neil is using on a show right now, and essentially tested that. I won't go into it because I've talked about it with Neil on the podcast. So no, tell me. Um, it's it goes on the the Steadicam arm. It's uh, uh it, it's it's all axis. Uh, I don't know how to explain it properly. Neil could do it right, but but basically it's for simulating handheld, but you get smooth handheld, right? So he does a lot of work mounted to the dolly with it, and then he then he'll throw the vest on and it 
goes on the arm and you basically hold it this way and just pan and tilt and you know but it has a little bit of it has a feel of handheld without being handheld that's funny because that has become a convention and maybe it's time to question the value of that convention you know I mean simulating handheld I'm trying to think of a funny analogy to develop an elaborate machine that simulates handheld is like to develop an elaborate machine that simulates one of your legs is shorter than the other. I mean, it's like... <laughs> right. I'm not sure that's a, a good goal at this point, you know, because we don't see handheld. We do not see handheld. It's, it's an arbitrary convention because it was easy and fun and those darn new wave French guys, those Nouvelle Vague <laughs> guys, just merchandised it because it was easy. I used to love handheld to shoot it, but I always hate watching it. Right, right. It's easy and fun. DPs think they can grab a camera and make a great sequence. Here's the, here's the rub. People think that handheld is appropriate for action sequence because it's more exciting, right? Yeah. I'm not. I don't think that's true. I think I agree. if you are being mugged, or if you are in a battle, or being punched, or so on, you don't see like handheld. You don't see shaky, blurry stuff. You s the brain keeps trying to lock up something for you to look at. Mm. You see a series of swish pans and locked frame. You know, frozen images here and here and here and here and here. Because your brain is trying to orient you and get you back to the point where you can see a continuously smooth image. So right. being mugged is a series of of kind of little odd whip pans and stills that the brain has tried to retrieve for you. And every one of them looks level. When right. you're being beat up, you don't feel like you're off level. The, right. You know, the, you know you are, but the world is always leveled. Right. See. You know, in general, I agree with you about handheld and action sequences. I, I would say there are some exceptions, one being the Bourne movies, which were, it was such a big thing about the handheld and people getting quote-unquote motion sickness and stuff. But I thought he used, the director used handheld brilliant, brilliantly because part of the movie is there's confusion and nobody knows who's, and I think he used it in a great way to confuse the audience and to, to disorient them from what was going on. That's the way I felt. I understand if you don't agree with that. And in most instances with action, it is very much overused. May, I, dis opinion. may I disagree with that? Sure, because please do. I'd offer you something else. I, I do these lectures at film schools and so on on the moving camera, and I, you know, if I'm talking to filmmakers, I, I say to them, now suppose there was some better way to shoot action. Uh, and I went looking for a better way that would reproduce what I was just talking about, which is moments where your brain can't handle keeping a track until mm -hmm. it it acquires a still and it shows you that, and it acquires another still over here. You get a you get a, a look at an action sequence in these tiny vignettes that occur when the brain can actually generate something. <clears throat> Uh, and the one that I show is a sequence from Titanic, of all things, shot by Jimmy Muro. He was charged by Cameron with trying to come up with a better way to shoot the action sequences than handheld. 
and Muro took a Steadicam flyer from memory, an SL Cine 35 camera, which was stupidly light. I owned one, it was great, with a 200-foot mag, so that his entire burden was this super light rig. And he ran around and rough operated, rough Steadicam. Because what happens is at the, it more or less stays level, more so than handheld, because he was good. And at the moment when these moves are stopped, you actually get a respectable momentary look at something, and then it, you're following somebody and it jerks over here and it jerks over here. And I play that sequence in the hopes that somebody will amplify this idea and maybe show us a better way to shoot action. And look, if the better way to shoot action involved us study cam operators receiving a salary, <laughs> that's all to the good. Sure, know? sure. And it might be that the little arrow uh, study cam with the volt, which is coming, there'll be an arrow volt eventually, could be the, an astoundingly great way to do it because all these whips and all these, you can jerk the hell out of it and you will get these momentary impressions that, uh, you know. I, how often have you been mugged, by the way? Once. Once. I've not been mugged. I, I wish I, 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 luckily, I was not uh, physically. I, I, I essentially ran from the, the car with the gun. <laughs> uh. They didn't fire. I got away. So oh. maybe I haven't been mugged, but I was held up. I'm, so I'm, not, you're eager, talking about a I'm not eager to be mugged, but it would be fun to see if this theory is true. <laughs> I'd like somebody... You'd like to be mugged to prove I'd like point? to have you be mugged and report to me. Whether it goes <laughs> I see, I see. <laughs> uh, no, I... The, the point is taken, you know, and... And, um, uh, and, and by the way, I, I have to... I have to just clarify that, that Charles and Neil... Neil specifically, because I don't think Charles ever used this thing. He, he just built it. He's not using it as his choice to oh no no and by the way I admire that he did it and I love okay. I love that kind of innovating I'm just I'm not sure it's the ultimate that's all well he's he's presented an answer to a to a well he's presented a solution to a problem the producer had they wanted to have their show look handheld you know quote unquote look handheld but not as shaky. And so this is the device he's using. And now you're questioning the choice of the producer <laughs> to, to want mm. it to, quote, unquote, look handheld. I think it's a brilliant solution to a, to a problem we do have on, on sets these days, which is to find something that makes the shots they want to yeah, see. You know? This will be a long time coming, but it will help if operators have, for example, pepper spray. And if somebody wants handheld, they, they can, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Respond. <clears throat> well, the the problem is, you know, it, I think people get people get their own ideas, and people who don't necessarily uh, know what they're doing, and they and they charge people with doing it. And so, if you want the job, you you try to do what they want to but see. You've you know? just described management as a phenomenon. All right. Well. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. And labor. Yeah. Well, you know, we. We are we are labor, so yeah. But the great thing about it is we're still here, and we're still, I think, more essential than ever. You know, yeah. Th this is this is a marvelous way 
to move the lens, period. Uh, undoubtedly. I, I actually was a, as you may know, a huge fan of a version called Tango. Did you ever have a go at Tango? I did. I did. I have a photo somewhere of me doing it. I, I love the Tango, and, and I realize now, mea culpa, it was, I made two crucial mistakes. Hmm in inventing that number one i made it a a uh, accessory to your your regular rig you know the ultra or the tank or the uh, archer at that time the trouble with that is it ties up your rig you know it's you know not an inconsiderable setup and now it ties up your rig um that is not good for business because you know you may want to do a tango shot and then you may want to do a regular shot and the, the ideal thing would be to have a tango set up that you pick up with your arm and vest and you do that and then you know you do the other thing the tango should have come out of the box with both gimbals you know for you to just slide the master side on and slide the slave side on and balance it quickly right mm -hmm. Uh, the other problem is that the tango was a bit tougher to operate than the regular rig because you had to keep it level and it's it's you know it's out there it's remote you don't have the same great look at it that you do of your regular rig the 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 ways you use to keep the regular rig level are strained a little bit when the business end of it is out that far on the plus side though the tango let you do these floor to three meter shots these marvelous traverses that were just smooth as glass and fitting through astonishingly narrow spaces and doing moves that were dynamically more rapid and more exciting than anything the study can study cam can do so i was in mourning when we elected to discontinue it because sales weren't that great but now, now I'm beginning to think a Volt, a Tango Volt, mm. could be much simpler because it wouldn't need the tie rods, it wouldn't need all that. It has all that gear that exists in the Volt itself. And boy, that could be a great rig. So to be honest, and I haven't cleared this with the factory, but that's, that's going to be something that I'm going to chase really hard because I want one. I cannot wait to shoot with that baby. Have you have you tried the <coughs> Trinity or the yes, or the uh, AR and what are your thoughts? The AR is fine. I don't like I don't like the fact that it's all in one plane and that at one point tilting is what used to be panning and so on. Right. And also don't like that it's relatively heavy and the distance between the gimbal and the lens in the AR is not that great. Um, <clears throat> likewise the Trinity is relatively heavy. An added complication is tilt is often a joystick phenomenon with the Trinity, which I don't love. Um, there have been some nice shots made with it, but you know what? There have been way fewer gangbuster shots than you would expect. Yeah. Where are they? You know, where are the you know the shots that knock your socks off? You know, I'm sure I don't know all of them. I know I know of Will Arnett's shot, that commercial he did. Yeah, Will and Will is a uh, Arn wonder. Arn yeah. Arnott, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Will is a wonderful operator and extremely smart. So he would be a leading a leading guy. Yeah, and that's I'm sure there are other great shots. I I just I'm not aware of them. Uh, but but you, but I agree with you. There, we're not all 
talking about that great Goodfellas shot as if, you know, or whatever. No, but I'm, you know, I'm out here. I'm, I'm machinating in my own way, and I, I always try to get something that I would love. I loved the tango. I didn't love that it was an accessory. Mm-hmm. I loved the tango, but I didn't love that it was trickier to keep it level, that you had to be just monstrously careful about that. I believe I would love the tango if it was self-leveling neutral balance, unlike the way it was, in neutral balance, so you could just swing it with immense violence and speed if you wanted to. And um, simple as dirt, you know, comes out of the box with no tie rods and extend it, make it, you know. So my, I think my goal now is my next goal is going to be, um, I'm going to give that a lot of thought. I would love that to exist. I feel like you're pitching Tiffin on this idea right now. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're too clever by half, pal. You shouldn't have notified Tiffin. Oops, sorry. Pitching. No, I, I'm not pitching anyone except <laughs> Tiffin. No, no, they actually are, in, are intrigued. You know, we have a bunch of things on our plate. There's an M2, which will be a great rig. Oh, is there? Uh, will be, yeah. And um, a couple others that I dare not dare not name. Gotcha. Uh, but the basic phenomenon of the Volt has been very satisfying for us. And it's selling like gangbusters, and operators love it. So, And you know why? It's, it's because it is transparent to what we do as operators. You, you cannot even tell it's doing anything. It just makes you feel like a god when you're operating it. It makes mm-hmm. you feel like, whoa, I'm good. You know, sure. And that's good. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> and I, I, you know, I'll tell you. It eliminates a, a crappy thing that why should anybody have to tr- bother with? That's, that's what it is. Right. Um, I, have to, I have to tell you, I, I, better, I better go try it again and, you know, reevaluate because... What I don't like about the wave is that you can never go off level a little if you need to, because there are certain situations where you're a little yeah, if you're tilted or way ke- up or whatever. Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, and and you know it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens fairly often. And and um, and in that instance, I guess you can turn the wave off, but but then why are you flying this giant thing on there? You know, and I think uh, I so it's nice with the Volt you can you can do that. But you know, Chris Harhoff and I talked about the personality of shots and different things, and um, I, I, my worry with all the adding computers and all this stuff that that become things will become too sterile. Operating will become too sterile, and you know, when you see a great a great shot by one of the greats, Harhoff. Uh, Jimmy Muro that you mentioned before you know there are many many even you there's a personality to how they do things absolutely and and I don't I don't want to be I don't want to be the guy carrying the robot that does you know what I mean no that's the kind of as they used to say deus deus ex machina Mm. difficulty but the great thing about the vault is turn it all off that is a great thing about it. You know, bring in as much as you want. If you're annoyed by how tough it is to operate with a with bottom heavy, 
turn just of it, enough of it on so you can operate neutral. That alone is a revelation. Mm. That's what I wanted from the beginning. I wanted neutral operating. I never wanted it to be a pendulum when you sure. walk around a corner. That's ridiculous, you know. <laughs> right. So if as long as you can operate neutrally, then you can add as much or as little artificial bottom heaviness, which amounts to drop time, as you want. If you want to be a Frenchman, you can dial it up to two years and three months of drop time. You know? and, and in other words, it's, I, I think about a lot of this um, in terms of violin. Okay. And if you made a self-tuning violin, which you could easily do right. with little servo motors up there that you could somehow make quiet. It would be very hard to persuade a good violin player to even take it up mm. because part of, their, part of their brilliance is perfect intonation in the middle of these fantastic maneuvers up that tiny little, tiny little neck, mm. you know. But on the other hand, being able to dial in a little bit of that for all the rest of us sure. is fantastic. And even the very, very best may shy away from Don Juan mm. because it's harder to do that and stay level. Mm-hmm. Why should you, you know? Why should you shy away from that wonderful ability in order to... You know, because you're you're, it's harder. You know. Publicly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I review. I look at it as ABS brakes, which I'm resigned to and quite happy with. I look at it as the anti skid, the anti skid phenomenon driving. You know, where your your motors stop you from the rear end breaking out. Mm-hmm. You know? It's a, it's a conundrum. How much help do we want with stuff? Well, when I, I that example, you know, that's about that's about safety and that. But you know, Steadicam is an art. Violin is an art. You know, or a, it, at the very least, a craft, right? So, I, I get what I get what you're saying. I mean, you know, and I I think I agree, and I think I have to look. I I think I have to try the Volt again with a different. Mindset. I think I have to think about some of the things. Well, what, you said. what was your impression of it when you tried it? And well, w- and when, by the way, was it the very first time we showed it at Tiffin, or is subsequently? I I tried it at Cinegear, and then first year. Yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure. Yeah, and then uh, and then I tried it again at at Tiffin later. I don't know how much later. At the, I think the open house. I think, um, but my impression was that, and and here's the thing: I wasn't thinking of it in those terms either. Like I didn't try a whip pan with it. I don't think you know. Mm-hmm. So maybe, maybe I need to re revisit that because, it, for me, it it felt. I don't. I don't know how to. Maybe it's a purity thing, but it it didn't feel like it was doing that much for me. And I, I'm not trying. To, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to slag on it or you know. I just didn't. I, I guess I hadn't thought about it in the ways that you just talked about. You know, the better you are, 
the less it needs to do. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Which is good. No, that's good. <laughs> In other words, you can be as good as anybody on earth and barely need it at all. I mean, I, sure. I, I never felt near the end that I needed help. Um, and I think a lot, most everyone level. would agree. Yeah. But I never, ever in my life got to the point where I could hold a high tilt against bottom heaviness and be absolutely confident in it and walk around and not think about it. Great, great example. You know, because I didn't try that with the Volt. And, but that's, that's the kind of thing that it does brilliantly. Right. <laughs> Why should some force be trying to, to screw up your tilt bottom heaviness? Sure. When that's where you want to point it, you know? Yeah. If you want to go off level, all you've simply done is created an artificial bottom heaviness that wants it to stay level. If you dial that down, you can go off level as much as you want. But your natural instinct for level is, in effect, confirmed. That's all. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's a nothing. You know? Well, I've been doing it a long time. You know, I'm I'm coming up on how 20 long, years. by the way? How long? Eight, almost nineteen now. Nineteen years since since I since I got a rig and started yeah. started flying. You know. Yeah. Um. So maybe it's just that. Maybe it's uh. I'm I'm pretty okay at at keeping it level and whatever. But but I again I didn't look at it in the other ways that you're talking about. And so I, you know. I, w- I would say the way to look at it is it's a way to do stuff that you would normally be very cautious of doing. Right. Whip, Fair enough. Whip pans that are, I have to say, almost miraculous once you get it set up. So like next time, Don Juan, you know, being able to look away and save your ass on some difficult technical ground, you or know, step up the curve, navigation or ground, sure. And look back and bingo, it's right. there, you know. <clears throat> no, that's great. So I'll, I'll have to try it again with a different um, a different mindset of what the thing's actually for. Because my thought of it was that it's just a, just a leveling machine, you know what I mean? Oh, no, by no means. No. Of course, which yeah. is now what you've explained. And I've had conversations with people. and I don't See, the know. wave is a leveling machine. Yes, it is. It yeah. is. Which is why when I first started... Have you had one, this. by the way? Do you own a wave? No, I don't. No, no. Um, but but the, when I first brought it up, that's why I compared the wave and the volt, because I kind of thought that's what the volt was for. No, actually, and that's not. one part no. of what it does is what you're explaining to me, which is interesting. In fact, it won't absolutely level you. It will simply do what the great a great form of feedback does, which is tell you what it is. Right. You know? Yeah. Tells your hand what it is, as if it was bottom heavy. Right. It mimics gravity a little. Oh, a little and it right. does It does lash the center of your back with a small cat of nine tails if you're off. That's helpful. That. That's, that's helpful. Thing. Yeah. That is good. Yeah. Well, actually, I heard that's what the panic light did. <laughs> <laughs> it did that even though we weren't operating. <laughs> I know I've I've been I've I've heard tales of uh, yeah, the panic line actually line. hired a doctor to <laughs> to design the vest. Did they really? Yeah. Now I'm not sure the doctor didn't work for, for example, a, a slave galley, <laughs> or I'm not sure. But he, he he wasn't that cool about 
avoiding pain. Was it Goebbels? Was that the doctor? Oh, no, I'm not going there. But <laughs> fine, fine. Bad example. It was Dr. Scholes. <laughs> no, I don't Dr. Know. Frankenstein. I don't know who it was. <laughs> No, 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 um, no. But I've heard it was it was more of a torture device. But uh, um, I, you know, one thing I want to ask you 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 talked about encouraging inventors and stuff, and you've invented a lot of things. How many patents do you have? Because I've read you have over fifty. Is that still kind of true? Or? Yeah, probably at this point seventy, maybe. Wow. Um, and how many of those patents? will either apply to a product or be a product that that will come to market, do you think? Well, some haven't yet. Um, I made an iPad arm. I don't do many consumer things, but if I really want one myself, I, I did make an iPad floating arm. Yeah. Because I like to read in bed, and, you know, white type on black, so my wife isn't woken up. If I fall asleep, it falls asleep. I love that. Yeah. Um, well, your talk is out there on it, which I found yeah. fascinating. Well, that, there it is. I mean, it's if you're slightly insomniac, that that thing is great. Yeah. Um, and I, I had a very rigorous list, if you'll recall our discussion about lifts, lists, and we nailed almost everything in that list. However, we've had two licensees, and both went bankrupt for other reasons. So I have nobody to build it yet, but. Jerry Hallway and I did it, and we're we think someday somebody will build it. It'll be great. I I know everybody that sees it wants it. Well, they'll they'll have to. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's it looks. I've just seen video of it. It looks so good. You know, you just move it around, and I, you know, I think of it weighs twelve ounces. That's part of what's fun. I travel with it. You pull it out of that little tiny thing. It's like an umbrella, almost the size. Right? You know what's one of the best things about it is, if you are skyping or FaceTiming somebody, you can raise it, right? Yeah, the normal angle sucks, but if you FaceTime yourself from up about a foot above your head, you look like a god. <laughs> and that's what these things do. You know, most people FaceTime themselves. From the area where your chin looks horrible, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it just hangs there. And if you want to read, and you can go a little further, a little closer, up yeah. and down, with no, with Watch, minimum watching films, you know, watching yeah. videos, looking at YouTube, blah blah blah. Yeah, it, and the the, the description yeah. it looks brilliant. Um, but I think you have something that that the one thing I'm aware of that maybe will affect even more people is the zine. Well, I, I, I was thinking probably not to go into that. Oh, too I'm much sorry. Well, yeah, that's okay. Right, but if somebody wants to see that thing, just look at, I guess you could Google Zen, Z E E N, or Google exokinetics.com, E X O K I N E T I C S.com. We, we're, doing, we're trying a replacement for the walker in the wheelchair because. I was watching my dear old dad expire at 97 and not liking the, you know, the walkers and wheelchairs that his pals were walking around in. Yeah. And a lot of this is personal. I, I don't want to end up on one of those things. So Nobody the, does. The only way around it is to try to uh, um, uh, do something else, you know. <laughs> it's something you want. Yeah. And made you know, uh, 
something other people could really use, I think. But anyway, I, I forgot that you didn't really want to chat with that. Well, no, that's all right. I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's fantastic. This, but, and something like that, if you're not inspired to yell Kawabanga while you're writing it, that's, that's not good. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else? How, like, are there other products that that I'm not aware of? Because I've I've exhausted what I'm aware of now. So, is there is there anything else on the horizon for you? No, I I <clears throat> I stopped shooting in '04. I never shot a green screen shot and features, and I never shot a digital film. It was all film. And I had, I guess, a charmed life for the movies that I did. But I love, I love digital at its best. I love CGI when it's really great. It went through an awful period where the CGI artists were little weenies, you know, pounding out ones and zeros and weren't thinking about Newtonian physics and stuff that any kid can bust for being unreal. But it's getting good. It's getting really good. I. Th- I think we're in a great, we're upcoming great era in every respect except that the money people rule and they will do everything they can to impoverish us who work in the business. They sure will. But aside from that, the work should be extremely interesting. Um, If CGI ever acquires the heart and soul that traditional direction of actors and great old stories had and that's we're playing catch up now cgi is still very sterile and mm-hmm. kind of doesn't get you in the gut quite yet but it's 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 coming it's coming i'm excited about it i mean i i get all the academy screeners yeah half the half of them i don't even know the names of them but the best of the best are still, still great. Yeah, they are. They we still make great movies, and you know, not enough, but there are still great films getting made. There are fifty copies of Steadicam in the world. There are a half dozen copies of Skycam, for that matter, because that patent expired in '04 mm. or '03. But. You know, the Steadicam brand is still going strong, getting better, and we're still doing really interesting stuff. So, And as are some other makers in this business, you know. <clears throat> and I think our future as operators for this game has, has never been brighter. There are never, never more of them than there are now. And you asked me early on, why didn't we keep this thing to ourselves? And I had, thank God, I had the primitive wit to say to people like Larry McCockey and Kyle Rudolph, who said, no, God, don't teach anybody else. This is a great racket. And before that, uh, I'll think of his name, the guy at General Camera, when I showed an earlier prototype, to, he said, let us have this exclusively. We'll cover it in black cloth, and you'll do all the work. Right. <clears throat> no, brother, that's not the answer, you know, because if there was one <clears throat> violin player on earth, he or she would be in a circus. Mm-hmm. But with 100,000 violin players, and you're good, as Randy, what's his name, said, that's when you get the C note per diems and the 
half pound of cocaine and a long limo. And, <laughs> Who's that, Randy Nolan? No, no. no <laughs> he might have said that. Uh, oh, the the, the, the short the singer. Yeah. Oh, Randy. Um. Uh. Oh, geez. Short people and uh, yeah, I him, love L.A. Him, and, him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it doesn't yeah, matter what no, it's, everybody it's, will know. It's when there are a lot of them and you're good. Right. And that's what inspired us to teach. And Jerry Hallway, bless his soul, <clears throat> came up with a dictum that said, the main thing you do is share. Yeah. You share with anybody who needs help. And that is, the, I think, the reason for our strength. I do, too. As a category and our cohesiveness. And by God, we need it in the face of studio money guys and the relentless forces to save money and so on. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, it's less to save money and more to make money for themselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. They're it's taking not, it out of our pocket and putting it in theirs. It's not even a union type thing. It's just no. that the more of us who are good, the better all of our lives will be. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. We're a form of artisan, you know. If you need a plumber, you still need a good one. Right. Know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and and you know the reason our job is one of the one of the best if not the best on the set is because we get to do a little bit of heavy lifting as well as a little bit of uh art art right yeah. it's arty, arty and athletic in in you know in a good scenario some scenarios you just do what they say and you don't complain no but. this this one i think i think it's true it's the best job in the business yeah yeah and I, I remember, I remember talking to you, and uh, we'll finish up here in a, in a few minutes. But I remember speaking to you when I did my workshop in, I guess it was two thousand, with you up in your shop, with Alfredo Betro and Grayson Austin and Alec Jarnigan and Mitch Gross. Gross. I think that was all of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, and. Just a little context. Every now and then, I used to do one in my in my lab for four people. I did one for four people from South Africa that otherwise wouldn't have had much a chance. A quote black guy, as they described them then, a colored who happened to be Indian, really, and a woman. And none of these categories had a decent chance to advance in the business. And Ben Richardson, who was an up and coming DP. So we had our eye on Ben, invited him to come join. It was a great workshop. Chris Fawcett came over. We had tango. We had cool. You know, we had everything. Yeah. And um, yours was in my factory, correct? In Westchester, PA, or was it in the barn? No, it was in the factory. Yeah. 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 That small office. That's right. And, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I can still remember it. You had a couple of steps up to the, from outside in, and then uh, bathroom. I remember because we yeah. did the. The big yeah. shot. Uh, what do you call that? The test. No, the end shot. The the. Oh, it doesn't matter. But uh, I I can remember that off. And you had gear everywhere. I remember you had a. Uh, I, I you had a room just full of old rigs, and you had this and that. It was cool. But but that was for Alfredo mainly, yes, right? That's because right. Storaro. Yes. 
Uh, I think he was Storaro's operator. And, yep. Yep. But but I remember you you would you would come and chat with us and we would practice and practice and you'd be in the other room. Then you'd come out and you said, "Let me let me show you what I'm thinking." And you'd put the rig on, and you were like a ballerina, you know. And and you would come this close to everything. And I was so impressed that you wouldn't look down at the desk. You knew where the desk was, and you would slide by, and then you'd go this way, and then you. And I always thought that's that's who I want to emulate, you know. Uh, uh, I guess we all did, but it was great learning from you and watching the originator of it do it. And you find yourself doing just that now, right? Those things. Yeah. 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 Uh, That's part of why it's a great job. It's fantastic. So one last thing. Are you going to write a book ever? Are you going to release a book? Did you... (laughs) I actually, at one point, I run a fairly precarious enterprise because I usually put all the dough into these things that we're working on. And um, at these one crazy point, dreams. Every, everybody went bankrupt at one point. And I thought, well, I, have, I, I need to earn a living. And I thought to write for a living, which is a bad, a bad form of pressure. And I wrote a, about 60% of a book about all this. Which I actually quite quite like, and it took it up to the moment where it's invented, but no further. Mm. And now I'm coming around to thinking I want to finish that because all the great stories of the early movies, you know, the the Bound for Glory and The Shining, and and so on. And I think I'll call it Inventing Stories, which will let me play fabulous with some of these and not have to be exactly correct, you know. So. Yes, I, the, thanks for asking. I'd love to. I'd like to finish this baby, but I have to get a little free time. Yeah, yeah. I think the academy has the prototypes, as you may know. At, at the new academy museum, has all the early prototypes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. They in opening in in 2019. They'll you can go in there and see them all. Right. Wow. Really. Yeah. So just like walking into your shop there. Yeah. Exactly. And and then. Uh, the Academy Library wants my whole archive of you know print and hundreds designs of and old stuff. And all that oh, wow, stuff. really? However, I think I need to finish the book before I turn that stuff over. So, because the you book is the, the archive is the source of the chapter and verse, and the library has made themselves available in case I want more details. So I'll, I'll be hovering out here and you know looking at that. I, I like the idea of finishing it. I'd love to get it done. It's just so goddamn many great things to do. That's the problem. And there's the walking machine. Right. <laughs> Maybe in your in your research from the past and writing the book, you'll come across an idea that you had 40 years ago or 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 further that that gives you an inspiration for the walking machine. This is me trying to encourage you to write the book. <laughs> no, I, I, I <laughs> because I, I, I think I so many people want to read it. <laughs> the funny thing is that the walking machine project started when I was working on The Shining, because Stanley would shoot <clears throat> a seven-minute scene with two or three cameras running, thousand-foot loads. That would leave three hundred-foot short ends from three or four magazines. And the particular scene I have in mind, seven-minute scene, he shot 48 takes. 
So there were a hell of a lot of short ends around. And I persuaded him to give me the short ends <clears throat> so I could load up my rig and get somebody to walk and walk alongside them and shoot to analyze what it is we do when we walk. So Really? I still have... I still have all that footage of people walking. Have you have you shown have you shown that to I don't even know what kind of doctor it would be somebody that to really like analyze no, I, different I, kinds of I don't I'm not sure I even need to I mean I look you look and you get I it you so, see what yeah. they're doing you I know? guess yeah one problem with Olympic doctoring is there there are so many angels on the heads of pins that they're examining that. Let's let's put it this way. Progress is slow. Mm-hmm. In fact, when I um, was doing the underwater camera for the Olympics, <clears throat> the Federation was worried that my little underwater submarine that was all of the size of two loaves of bread and and or a loaf of wonder bread. <laughs> by, by the way, I was going to bring this stuff up, but you've talked about it. I didn't want to like ask well, a question that's I'll been asked. Well, I'll tell you one particular Please thing. do, yeah. They wanted us to prove that the underwater camera would not create a pressure wave that somehow would let one swimmer surf yelling kawabanga and not have to swim. <laughs> okay. So they brought us to the Olympic pool in in Colorado, Colorado Springs. Right. They put a cloud of dye in the middle of the pool over our rail, squirted red dye, which turns into tendrils. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it looks like this spidery tendril thing of red. Like and jelly, they, red jellyfish. Kind and of. they made us drive the rig through it at full speed. And I had said, well, this is a computer-designed hull, you know, it won't create any problems, blah, 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 but which was not strictly true in the sense that there was no computer involved <laughs> in the design of this thing. But I just closed my eyes and ran it through and then opened my eyes and looked and it went whoop, right through the die, and the die just sat there. Really? And then we all preened and said, there, you see, a computer-designed hull that will not do it. I can't even remember why I started on that soliloquy, but it has to do with the scientific idea of things is not always the true idea. Well, I'm not a I'm not a physics expert or anything, but I'm how do you, how do you manage to not move the water when you move something through the water? It uh, a, a hull goes through something and reconnects it at the back end in effect. It, it creates a pressure wave so and just, then it resolves it. And it was such a minuscule thing at the bottom of a 10-foot cloud that nothing happened. Right, because you're at the bottom of the pool. They're much higher anyway, right? Yeah. How, how large was that camera, uh, that, that, that housing or whatever it was, it was? only a foot and a half long Oh, with, so. a, with a dome about six inches tall. Oh, that so it's cool. tiny. But you should cut all this out of this interview because we've strayed far afield. <laughs> I like straying, but now do you edit these and pick an end point or not? Well, we can end now if you want. To. No, no, I meant if, if if you go back, there was a great ending hiding in there. Was there? Yeah. I I generally don't. I generally just um, kind of end them when they end. 
Well, no shame on you. You need to go back and pick an artful end. L- listen, what, what's every, the everyone out end? there, if he ends at this point, send him letters of <laughs> di- disapproval. I may now have to end at that point just for the letters. All right. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Such a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks. It was fun. It was. My sincerest apologies to Garrett for not ending the podcast at that point. He never told me the the proper end point, so I just had to end it when it ended. So you can send all of your hate mail to walkingbackwardspodcast at gmail.com. Hopefully there's not too much. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I have to thank... My old sponsor, Walter Clausen FX, for their continued support and the love they give me and the Steadicam community. And our new sponsor, Tiffin and Steadicam, who hopefully will be with me a long time. Um, I'm really excited to have them on board and to get their support and to know that they actually really want to have continued involvement with this community and support it is really cool. So thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I had a lot of fun doing it. I hope you had fun listening. And I hope you'll continue to listen in the coming weeks and months.